Good morning. My name is Lori Campbell, and I'll be reading from Proverbs chapter 24, verses 30 to 34. I went past the field of a sluggard, past the vineyard of someone who has no sense. Thorns had come up everywhere. The ground was covered with weeds, and the stone wall was in ruins. I applied my heart to what I observed and learned a lesson from what I saw. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a thief, and scarcity like an armed man. This is the word of the Lord. One of the problems anyone who preaches will tell you that you run into or you worry about is that when you are speaking about on a topic that uh, speaks to one unhealthy or sinful choice or direction in life, there's always that danger that in speaking about that, you might actually encourage an opposite unhealthy or sinful behavior uh, in another extreme, right? That, that we'll all affirm, yes, that's wrong because we're living on the other end. Uh, as we continue to look at the way of wisdom as presented in the book of Proverbs, my topic today is work and taking a look at what Proverbs has to say about work. And really, when you look at Proverbs, one of the central messages there related to work is be a conscientious worker and don't be lazy. Uh, you'll hear that said in a lot of ways through the book of Proverbs. You know, but the danger as I speak on that today that I recognize is that you know, I fear reinforcing something on the opposite end of the spectrum, that there's also an unhealthy and dangerous and even sinful destructive way to live life, and that's to make work everything, kind of a workaholic way of life, where work is life, it's equivalent to life. So I want to I at least acknowledge that and be careful about that. Uh, Bob and Dan and Adam and I have been reading together this book called Seculosity by David Zaw. In it, he has a paragraph on work, just reading this week, and he said, the U.S., despite boasting the smallest amount of days off of any country in the developed world, also leads the world in untaken vacation days. We, more than anywhere else in the developed world, we have the least vacation days, and we don't even take those. Uh, we like to work. Work is pretty central, I think, in some ways to our culture. In fact, he goes on and says, we average about 120 more hours of work each year than Great Britain, 300 more than France, and 400 more than Germany. Think how many hours that is than Germany. If those are 40-hour weeks, that's 10 weeks a year more that we work. I'm, I am booking my flight to Germany tomorrow. Uh, that is pretty good. I know when I've been in Europe, they talk a lot about their holidays. Actually, I've heard a lot of complaints about not getting enough holidays. Uh, I am never going to listen to that again. That is a, that's a lot of time off. But compared to the United States... Again, if we lean anywhere a lot of times, it's more towards a workaholic kind of culture. It's a problem. And, and Zoll concludes the chapter by saying that work performance is what he calls the great American barometer of worth and identity. We've, we've turned our performance in our work, in our careers, into the thing that determines who we are and, and that we look to, to to express our value to everybody else. Work has become what he refers to as the source of our enoughness the thing that makes us feel like we have value. It's, it's probably what the, what the prophet Jeremiah would describe as our broken cistern. 
the thing that we run to because we create it with our own hands and it offers some satisfaction for our deepest longing and needs. But we go there because we create it rather than turning to what God is giving us in abundance to fill that same emptiness and those same longings. So again, I want to acknowledge work can be very out of balance that way. But Scripture actually, when you go to the book of Proverbs, focuses more on the other end of the spectrum, on the fact that work is a, something we need to be responsible in and conscientious about, and laziness is honestly a sinful path. It's a bad choice. In fact, the Bible starts uh, by telling about work. The very first story in Scripture is a story of work, of God's creative work. Six days of work, and the seventh day of rest. And in the early chapter of Genesis, we're told that God created us to be workers. And that was before sin came into the picture. That was, work, work is a good thing. It is a wonderful thing. It's something we are created for and meant for. It's a reflection of our creator. Um, we're all meant for it. Theologian Jack Collins writes, Mankind's original task was to begin from Eden, work their way outward, and spread blessings of of Eden to all the earth. Our job was to take the blessings that were ours, to bring order and manage and to join God in his care for his creation, and then to extend that care out further and further, further and bring blessings to the whole world. He says this would mean managing all of its creatures and resources for good purposes, for God's good purposes, to allow their beauty to flourish, to use them wisely and kindly, and to promote well-being for all. That's our work. We were created for that. That is a good thing. But those early chapters of Genesis also tell us that a problem came into the picture, that sin entered the picture. And with sin, like everything else, work got distorted in some ways. That, that work now has to deal with some chaos and with curse. The work is kind of the mess of sin has affected our work. It uses words to describe what our work is now, words like painful toil, Thorns and thistles. Even creation works against our success now. Thorns and thistles. Sweat. It's just harder than it used to be. It's difficult in a lot of ways. Work comes with struggle. And, and the picture is painted where work now is always affected by this temptation to turn something that was to serve God's good purposes into something that just serves our own selfish ends. We have to struggle with that now because of sin. But when you come to the book of Proverbs, you're reminded that even though work now comes with that mess and that chaos and that curse, work is still something that serves good purposes, still something we're made for. And laziness is still a, an offensive way to live life, a foolish way to live life. So you find that spoken of in Proverbs in a couple of different ways. One thing the Proverbs does is it, it just kind of exposes the foolishness of laziness, of a lazy way of life. In fact, it uses the term to describe the lazy person, sluggard. And you think about it, that's just an ugly word. No one, it just sounds bad, doesn't it? Sluggard, you're slug. I mean, this is just not a great description of somebody. So it's the sluggard. Like in Proverbs 6, 6 through 11. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler. Yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. It, it's got no one directing to do, but it still does that. It still does what it needs to do to provide for the future. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? 
And in this next phrase, you hear the sarcasm oozing. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. I'll get to it in just a minute, a little bit. I just need a little break, that's all. I'll eventually get there. But for the sluggard, the break never ends. There's always another excuse to not get there. And the wise sage goes on and says, and poverty will come on you like a thief and scarcity like an armed man. You'll be surprised by it, but it shouldn't be a surprise. Or 1026, again, exposes the shamefulness of this way of life. It says, as vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so are sluggers to those who send them. If you've got to count on the person who's lazy, on the sluggard, it's like getting smoke in your eyes. It is just painful. It is a hard thing to deal with. I love 1924. A sluggard buries his hand in the dish. He'll not even bring it back to his mouth. Now that is really a slam, right? He, he reaches into his dish and it's just too hard to lift it back to your mouth. It's just, that's the way of the sluggard. I'm glad my wife's out of town this weekend because she would make that one of her favorite verses because her constant comment about me is that I'm a lazy eater. She says that about me all the time. Because uh, my idea of putting effort into a meal would be pouring that thing in a bowl and putting milk on top of it. I'm like, wore myself out. That's about as far as I want to go in preparing a meal for myself. In fact, her, her constant comment to me will be, you know, you said you wanted fruit. I went out and bought fruit because you said you want that, you want to eat healthier. And it sits in the refrigerator and goes bad. And I'm always like, well, if someone would cut it up, I would eat it. I'm not going to do all that work. You know, it looks good, but, and her constant comment back to me is, and I suppose you want me to actually put it in your mouth. I'm like, seems reasonable. <laughs> That's the way of the sluggard. And, and again, it's extreme, but really what he's saying here is this is how foolish the way of the sluggard is, right? The way of the sluggard is so foolish, your unwillingness to face any of the hardship of work means you're literally taking food out of your own mouth. What a foolish way of life. 22.13, the sluggard says, there's a lion outside, I'll be killed in the public square. In other words, the sluggard is someone who's always got an excuse not to go out and, and do their work, take on the task before them. You know, it's dangerous out there. There's lions roaming the street. You always got an excuse for something. That's the way of the sluggard. But Proverbs doesn't stop there. It doesn't just say this is a shameful way of life and expose its ugliness, but it also encourages those who are walking this path to turn away from that path, to, to choose a better path. And the way it encourages us to do that is two ways. One, it ex exposes the consequences that are ahead. Because there are, there are some rough consequences that are going to come if you continue in this path. But it also dangles before them, there are real benefits of getting up and, and working, facing the hard things. Being a diligent worker is what it often calls to. So we listen to a few of those passages. 10.4. Lazy hands make for poverty, but diligent hands bring wealth. And that's how Scripture will often talk about what um, wise work looks like. It'll often use the word diligent. And diligent doesn't mean just hard work. Diligent is a word, if you look at Webster's tell you, it's conscientious. It's conscientious work. It's work that's done with care, with concern. Thinking about not only doing your work well, but how your work impacts others. That's a diligent work. So diligent work leads to wealth. You're going to have more if you do diligent work. 
Lazy hands lead to poverty. You're going to have less if you're lazy. Now, I really need to point out here, Scripture never says that all poverty is due to laziness. That is absolutely not true. And in fact, much, much poverty has nothing to do with laziness. It has to do with lack of opportunity. It has to do with lack of resources. Many times poverty has nothing to do with people not working hard. But what it does point out is there are cases where poverty is absolutely due to laziness, where it is due to somebody unwilling to face the hard things before them that work requires of them. And as Proverbs often does, it speaks in what is generally true. Now, we can find exceptions, right? We can find people who are really lazy and inherited a lot of money, won the lottery, whatever, and have lots of money. But generally, if you're lazy, you're going to have a whole lot less. Generally, if you are a diligent worker, a good worker, a wise worker, you are going to have more. It's the general truth. Also says in 1224, diligent hands will rule, but laziness ends in forced labor. The person who's the diligent, conscientious worker, they're the people that generally will work their way up. They will be leaders in their places of employment or in the kind of work they do. And all work the Scripture talks about isn't the work you get paid for, it's work. Whatever work you do, if you do it well and diligent and conscientious, you will tend to work your way up. You will gain some capital in your place of work. And you will be the one who leads others and has a say in things over time. Uh, some of the other staff over the years have made fun of me here, that John gets to do whatever John wants to do. And my response is, yeah, if you're here 28 years, you can do that too. You know? You earn some capital over time, right? All jobs do that. Uh, but it's also true that if, and I've, I've seen this happen to people who will come to me sometimes and be in distress because of the fact that I just... I can't make ends meet. It seems like I can never keep a job. It's just really hard. And as I talk to them, this isn't always the story. But sometimes the story is because I kept leaving a job and leaving a job and leaving a job. And I just can't seem to get ahead in my job. And as we talk, sometimes the story is because that person over me was unfair and unreasonable expectations and unjust and all those things. Now, let me say strongly, there are absolutely times where employers are unjust and unfair, and you are wise to leave that job. That exists sometimes. But if that becomes a pattern, and again and again and again, that's what happens, it's good to stop and ask the question, is that really a problem of my work, the kind of work I'm in, or is maybe that a problem in my inability to submit to authority or my ability to do some of the hard things that work requires? Sometimes I'd ask those hard questions, right? Uh, where is the problem really lie? And what it says is, honestly, if you want to be someone who has some control over your work, you've got to walk through the hard. You've got to be a diligent worker. And if you're not willing to do that, eventually people will control you more and more, not less and less. 21, 25, 26 says, The craving of the sluggard will be the death of him. Because his hands refuse to work. All day long he craves for more. But the righteous give without sparing. And it's, it's really kind of a theme in Proverbs. Is that, you know, if you're, if you're unwilling to do the hard things and face difficulty of work, you will forever be in want. You will forever be craving. It'll just, your cravings will own you. You'll never have what you need. But what's interesting is on the opposite side, it doesn't just say if you work, your needs will just be met. It does say you will know, more likely know wealth. But it also says what is even the real blessing 
of being someone who's diligent with their work is you now not only have enough to meet your needs, but you get to give. You get to share. You get to be one who takes the good you receive and bring it and bless others. That's the real privilege of being a diligent worker. 28.19, those who work, um, work their land will have abundant food, but those who chase fantasies will have their fill of poverty. Now here he's not saying that the, um, the kind of the enemy of work is laziness, because the person chasing a fantasy may be working hard at it. They may be putting a lot of energy and effort into it. Here he says actually sometimes the enemy of diligent work, the opposite of it, is just being someone who chases after fantasies. Someone who pursues something that it's just what you want, but you're not facing reality about it. You're not caring for your responsibilities as you pursue it. And I would say to people, I think it is wonderful to pursue your dreams. I talk to people here all the time who are here in this place in the pursuit of a dream and willing to do some really risky things to pursue their dream. I think that's a wonderful thing. But I will always tell them, in that pursuit of, the, of that dream, you can't close your eyes to your responsibilities. That would never be God's calling to you, to close your eyes to what is a responsible thing to do, the bills that you have to pay, the people you have to care for. You can't close your eyes to that in the pursuit of a dream. That's a fantasy. That's not reality. You still have to live in reality. And that is the way, Scripture says, towards poverty, is to live in fantasy. And then I think Proverbs kind of sums up this path of laziness, this way of the sluggard, in chapter 18 and verse 9. It says, One who is slack in his work is brother to one who destroys. One way just sums it up and says, You know what's wrong with this path? It's just destructive. It's not just destructive to the one who is being lazy the one who's unwilling to work. Uh, and a lot of times I think we think that. If I don't take on my responsibilities and I don't do my work, I'm, I'm willing to do without. So what? You know? I don't, I don't care about the consequences. I'll suffer them. It only affects me. That is, I, I would say that's seldom true. I'd actually say it's probably never true. It's probably never true that the path of the sluggard only affects them. That it brings destruction. It brings destruction to many others can't tell you how many times I've sat with people who, who are dealing with either a family member or a friend, someone they care about and love, who honestly is just choosing a very irresponsible kind of path in life. And they're really struggling. They're put in a relational bind. The bind is, as I watch someone I care about really suffer the consequences of their bad choices, what do I do? Do I just sit and watch them suffer with the hope that they'll learn? Okay. But man, that's hard. It's hard to watch someone you care about suffer. Or maybe the consequences have gotten so big on them that even if they want to change, it's just too much. So do I relieve some of that burden so that maybe they have hope of change? Do I, do I lift the burden off of them and make the path easier and then they'll walk it? It's just, it's tough to decide what to do in those situations. We struggle with it. It puts people close to you in a bind. And boy, that bind grows when when the person who's choosing that way of life has a spouse or has children, right? Now do I let them suffer those consequences? Because innocent people now have to suffer because of that, right? How do I help those who are innocent and, and still encourage the person who's choosing foolishness to learn from the consequences? It's, it's confusing. It's difficult often. It puts us in a bind. 
uh, when someone chooses that path. It affects spouses and children, extended family. It is very, very seldom, if ever, something that only affects the self. In fact, if you're neighbor to someone who's lazy, now I don't, again, want to encourage the other extreme. I'm not saying all my neighbors need to be lawn experts and home experts and all those things. But I've definitely seen situations where a neighbor, uh, because of just following the way of the sluggard, has so destroyed their own property that they literally are stealing money from their neighbors because all their neighbors' property value now drops. They literally are taking away from their neighbors because of laziness. Say, oh, it only affects me. No, actually, it very specifically does not. Financially, it does not only affect you. It affects others. Think of community and charitable resources. They're always stretched, right? Always stretched to the limit. There's always more need than the resources to care for them. And many of those resources are absolutely, most of those resources, I would actually argue, are needed by people who are in difficult situations that they have no control over, that they can't change. But sometimes those resources are being used up by people who, honestly, you could take responsibility and change your situation. You could take more of this burden on your own shoulders, and those resources would now be freed up for those who truly need them. That's the path of the sluggard. Co-workers work harder, business owners lose productivity and profits, customers receive less in services and the quality of goods. Um, the way the sluggard steals and uses up and burdens, it destroys. It's what it does. And it does that, and the reason we would choose it, because sometimes work is really hard. It really is. And I mean, I don't want to say that lightly. I have talked to people that I don't know how they get up every day and do the work before them. I mean, I have seen people that do work that I can only imagine being able to do for a day, let alone for years. Work is sometimes really hard. It is a tough calling sometimes, and I don't want to make light of that. But, honestly, laziness is sometimes just purely out of foolishness. It is just purely out of selfishness. I love the quote by the comedian Drew Carey. He says, oh, you hate your job? Well, why didn't you say so? They have a support group for that. It's called Everybody. And they all meet at the bar next door. Right? Not everybody hates their job. That's not really true. Uh, but everybody has jobs that come with hard. Right? We always assume there are jobs that, no, no, those, that's just all good. If only I had a job like that. There are jobs that are easier. But all jobs come with their own kind of hard their own kind of struggle. Um, the effects of sin, the, the curse of sin didn't skip over any work. It's there in all of it. It all comes with some toil with the risk of failure. And our work, Proverbs tells us, it is hard, it is difficult, yet be diligent. Do the work anyways. Step up and do it. And why? Because the opportunity to build and to bless and to bring beauty and to help others flourish is always there, no matter what kind of work you do. And I really mean that, no matter what kind of work you do. It's easy sometimes to think, well, those are jobs I get, how those help others. Those are jobs I help, how they extend the good and bring beauty. But some jobs, like, does it really matter? Martin Luther said this about work. He said, a cobbler, a smith, a farmer, 
Each has the work and office of his trade. And yet they are all alike consecrated priests and bishops. All of us are people there to, to mediate, to bring God's blessings to others. All of us in whatever work we do. And everyone by means of his own work or office must benefit and serve every other. Every job you do affects somebody else if you, if you approach it that way. He goes on and says, what you do in your house is worth as much as if you did it up in heaven for our Lord God. We should accustom ourselves to think of our position and work as sacred and well-pleasing to God, not on account of the position and work, but on account of the word and faith from which the obedience and the work flow. Now, Luther would say there are some jobs that won't contribute to the good. You know, there's some jobs, honestly, just are sinful, evil. They don't, you know, if you're a, a jewelry thief, it's probably not a job you can do well and contribute to the good, right? There's some jobs not. But almost any job, it is a contributor. It is an opportunity to join God's redemptive work in this world if you will approach it in a conscientious and a caring way. I don't care if you're serving food out the drive through window. I don't care if you're fixing somebody's air conditioner. I don't care if you're diagnosing someone's illness. I don't care if you're a teacher or if you're a student. Whatever work you're called to, it is an opportunity to do the good and to join God's redemptive work in this world. So Proverbs admonishes us, warns us, encourages us to choose the way of wisdom when it comes to work. But I think it also, at the end, it kind of wraps the picture up with flesh on it. It kind of takes all those warnings and admonitions and draws a picture for us. And at the end of Proverbs, I think, is a, is a picture. Uh, the noble woman. I think the noble woman, in some ways, is the embodiment of wisdom, the wisdom that's being laid out all through the book of Proverbs. Uh, it's been said that she's not really any one woman. She's kind of a, a description of the good attributes of many women. In other words, when the writer of Proverbs says, a noble woman who can find, the answer is probably nobody. Uh, just like you're not going to find a noble man out there either, right? Nobody's going to truly find this person until Christ comes back. But it's their attributes, characteristics that we're all to strive for. And I think this woman in many ways lays out attributes that men and women are to strive for. And what's interesting is when you look at her life, what is primarily talked about in the description of this woman in Proverbs 31 is her work. Her work in her home, her trade as a businesswoman. It's her work that is the focus of that description. Matter of fact, what you don't find there, you don't find descriptions of her Bible study habits and her prayer life, her trips to the temple. You don't hear about any of that. You hear about her work. It says that she is a woman who fears the Lord. And it seems to imply that her fear of the Lord is being, on, being displayed in the way she works. She's a person who has well-planned work. She's a person who's thoughtful and diligent in her work. She is a woman who gets up early and goes to bed late. She trades out in the marketplace. She works hard at home. She works hard with her own hands. But you know what's the central message in the description of that woman? Is that her work always has as its end care for the needs of somebody else. It is always that someone else might flourish. In fact, it says about her husband at the city gates, the place where business was done, that he was honored he was respected in the city gates. And it seems to be saying because of her that was true. Not because he's such a great guy. Because she has done her work so well. 
she has somehow enabled him to flourish in the work that he does. That her, that her family is secure, that others are provided for, that she's a good businesswoman, people trust. That in all these ways, she reflects the fear of the Lord. She's an example of what it means to follow after God because she does her work well. I listened to one pastor talking about this passage, and he said that in all of this description of this woman, there is only one command for the reader. The one command appears in verse 31. Honor her for all that her hands have done, and let her works bring her praise at the city gate. That when you see someone who does their work diligently and wisely, according to the way of wisdom, praise them for it. Honor them for their good work. Because you know how we, how we, again, do God's good and redemptive work in this world? We be diligent workers. That's how we do it. We also do it by noticing the others who are diligent workers and expressing gratitude to them when they do it, praising them for the good work they do. Because nothing like that encourages more of it. That is what helps it to grow and expand and reach more and more people. So be a diligent worker but also be one who notices and appreciates those who are diligent workers around you in whatever their role, in whatever their job. Let's be people who notice. Because honestly, good, diligent, this kind of work, it builds, it beautifies, it promotes well-being and blessing for all. Not that extreme of workaholism, that's kind of about me. Not the laziness, that's about me. Diligent, caring work that sees the other while we do our work. The other option is destruction. Let's pray. Father, I am thankful for the skills and abilities and opportunities that you have given us. Father, for the many ways that you allow us to, um, to in some ways pursue our dreams, to live in a place where we really can not just work to survive, but we can actually... Uh, think about our gifts and our abilities and have multiple opportunities to do our work. And Father, whatever work we choose, I pray that we would choose to do it in the way you call us to do it. In a way that provides our needs, but a way that does so much more. That realizes in doing our work, whatever that work may be, it is an opportunity to do good, to serve your good purposes in this world that is yours. We thank you that we don't do it alone. We thank you that ultimately the good end will come when Christ returns and sets all things right. And Father, how thankful we are that you let us be a part of it. In your name, amen.